It's a rare scientist that ends up becoming part of the phenomena they've spent their entire lives studying. Say, a volcanologist? Hopefully not. <laughs> Cosmologist? Eventually. Neurologist? Ah, now that I can see. This is the reality for neurologist Dr. Daniel Gibbs, who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's after 30-plus years of treating it. But before we introduce Dan and present our conversation with him, here's a little background on Alzheimer's. Many of us live with dementia in one way or another. Whether it's as a caretaker, as someone grappling with the knowledge that they are at increased risk, or as someone who has it already. One of the most common forms of dementia, Alzheimer's disease, affects an estimated 6.2 million Americans, meaning that about one in nine people over 65 have it. According to the Alzheimer's Association, by 2050, that number will grow to about 12.7 million. Alzheimer's symptoms arise from neural degeneration. Think neural death and shrinking brain volumes. Although symptoms vary a lot from one person to another, depending on which areas of the brain are affected, common symptoms include disrupted ability to smell, problems with verbal, visual, or spatial memory, inability to easily form short-term memories, and impaired executive function which makes it harder to plan and execute complex sequences of events. Over the past few decades, there's been an explosion of research on Alzheimer's. And the most important goal, of course, is to find a cure. Although some promising drugs have appeared recently and more are in the pipeline, we're still far from having a magic bullet to eliminate the disease. And that problem may reflect a lack of progress on the other main goal, which is to understand what causes Alzheimer's in the first place. A clue that we've had for many decades is that Alzheimer's brains often show abnormal accumulation of two proteins, amyloid and tau. Amyloid protein accumulates in the spaces around neurons, forming plaques that may disrupt neural function. Tau normally binds to and stabilizes microtubules within neurons. In Alzheimer's, tau detaches from microtubules and forms tangles that may also cause neurons to function poorly or even die. A major hang-up now, which we talk about in the show, is whether accumulation of amyloid and tau truly causes Alzheimer's. It's possible that something else causes it, and that accumulation of amyloid and tau is just a downstream symptom. There's a huge, it has been a huge controversy about the meaning of, of amyloid. Mm -hmm. And there still are many who feel like amyloid is, is just waste product. It, it's not doing anything. It's, it's, it's not causing Alzheimer's. Yeah, right. it's not causing the problem. It's right. a result of the problem. That's today's guest, Dan Gibbs. For decades, Dan was a neurologist helping Alzheimer's patients, but about six years ago, he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease himself. His recent book, A Tattoo on My Brain, was released earlier this year and is the basis of our show today. One thing we dwell on today is the relationship between particular genetic alleles and Alzheimer's risk which matters because currently the most promising option for keeping Alzheimer's at bay is to adjust your lifestyle depending on your genetic background. In particular, the APOE4 allele occurs in over 50% of all Alzheimer's patients and is the strongest known genetic risk factor for the disease. APOE stands for apolipoprotein epsilon, and normally, apolipoproteins help the body transport and metabolize lipoproteins and cholesterol. The APOE gene comes in three main forms, APOE4, obviously, but also APOE2 and APOE3. Three is the most common in most human populations, whereas two is relatively uncommon, but has some neuroprotective effects. APOE4 is less common than three, but it substantially raises the risk of developing Alzheimer's by several fold if you have just one copy, but up to 30 fold if you have two. And if you do have APOE4, the key preventative measures that you can take are lifestyle related. Things like eating better, drinking less, sleeping more, reducing stress, and exercising more. In the show, we also talk about why the APOE4 allele might be linked to Alzheimer's. 
partly because it raises such an interesting evolutionary question. Why would an allele that has such devastating effects late in life be so common in many human populations? A possible answer, and a favorite topic of ours, is antagonistic pleiotropy, which describes how alleles can have positive and negative effects at different times in an organism's life. Such alleles can evolve to be quite common if they have positive effects early, even if their late effects are bad. Some recent studies, for example, suggest that APOE4 may promote healthy immune systems which might increase survival rates of kids who can then grow up to have kids of their own. Stick with us today as we discuss the latest in Alzheimer's research with Dan, his own experience with the disease, and the kinds of therapies and lifestyle changes that may slow its progression. I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Art Woods. And this is Big Biology. Well, Dan, um, welcome to Big Biology. It's uh, it's really an honor to have you on the show, and we want to talk about your book that came out this year, which is called uh, A Tattoo on My Brain, A Neurologist's Personal Battle Against Alzheimer's Disease. And so, first of all, I'll just introduce you as a neurologist who worked for many years at OHSU, and I guess the, the title of your book says it all, that after working with Alzheimer's patients for more than 30 years in your regular job, you discovered in 2015 that you yourself are in the early stages of, of Alzheimer's. Um, and so I want to just spend a, a significant chunk of time here early on in the podcast talking about your insider perspective of what it's like to live live with Alzheimer's. Um, so let's, let's just start with you and your book. You were diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease in 2015. Um, maybe just tell us, like, what happened leading up to that? Um, and what, what were the sort of clues that you got from you know, your knowledge of, of your own work with uh, Alzheimer's patients that led you to suspect that it might be Alzheimer's? Yeah, well, you know, in retrospect, uh, the, the first symptom of Alzheimer's probably was way back in 2006 when I first noticed some very slight trouble uh, with my sense of smell. And at the time, I, I didn't think anything of it because the, the most common cause of loss of, of olfaction is age. And, you know, if you lived to your 90s, virtually everybody at 95 is anosmic. So uh, starting about 60, the sense of smell tends to decrease. I was in the, my mid-50s at that time. So I thought that was probably all it was. But then about a year later, I started to get these really interesting uh, phantosmias. Um, these were uh, illusory odors that were stereotypical. They were always the same, uh, quite pleasant. It was the smell of baking bread mixed with perfume. And you know, in the literature, phantosmias are usually described as being unpleasant. But, but um, I've talked to, to uh, at least three other people who've, uh, who have Alzheimer's or who are at risk for Alzheimer's uh, who have had similar phantosmias, and they've all been pleasant. So I don't, I don't know what that... Huh means of anything. In, in the <laughs> literature, there's, there's no specific tie of phantosmias to Alzheimer's, but certainly there is a tie, which I didn't know at the time, between Alzheimer's and loss of the sense of smell. Virtually uh -huh. everybody with Alzheimer's, with a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, if they're tested for olfaction, have uh, impairment, but most people aren't aware of it. And I wasn't aware of it either. As a neurologist, I, I, I uh, certainly was aware of other neurologic diseases, particularly Parkinson's disease, which 80% uh, of people with idiopathic Parkinson's will develop a loss of olfaction or impairment of olfaction starting about 20 years before the motor and, and, and gait problems. But uh, I didn't know about Alzheimer's. So 
it was a, a thing of interest, but uh, it, it didn't really worry me. Was, was, were there some cue, like cues that brought on the phantasmia, or was it just come out of nowhere? You would you would smell bread and perfume. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I tried. I couldn't really find any external odor that did it. Um, but there also was another thing, uh, particularly later on, where uh, when when I had less ability to smell where very strong noxious odors would sometimes uh, stimulate a smell, but it wasn't anything like that odor, particularly uh, exhaust or, or gasoline. Um, and, and that would, it, it would, that scent, that smell, which was usually kind of sweet. So it wasn't you know, at all like, like, you know, the, the odor would persist for an hour or so. So that must've been something related uh, mechanistically, yeah. but, but yeah, I've, I've not really read anything about that. I don't get any of that now. I don't get phantasmias or I just have no sense of smell. But uh, it wasn't until 2012 that the next clue came. And that's when I accidentally discovered that I had two copies of the ApoE4 allele. And that came about when my wife wanted to get our DNA tested for genealogical purposes. And uh, Alzheimer's uh, disease wasn't on my radar screen at all because my parents both died early from cancer. Uh, and I, I just wasn't thinking about a family history of Alzheimer's, although looking more carefully, there certainly were people a generation back uh, before my parents who, who did have uh, Alzheimer's. Um, and uh, at that time, in addition to getting your biological relatives sent to you, uh, you, you got uh, various um, medical risk factors. And, and there was a black box that you would have to unlock that had two genes of neurological interest. And one was the LARC2 gene, which is the most common mutations in that gene are the most common cause of hereditary Parkinson's disease. Now, hereditary Parkinson's disease is only 20% of Parkinson's disease, but, but this is the gene that causes most of that. And so I was thinking, wow, you know, you know maybe I'm on the, the, the trend to get Parkinson's disease. So uh, that's why I unlocked it. But the other gene was the APOE. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was just shocked to find out I was a homozygote for uh, ApoE4, but still I had no cognitive problems at all. And I, I was still practicing, you know, I, I did go to a, a friend who uh, is a dementia expert and we did some off the record uh, computer testing, cognitive testing. And I did find uh, I was in the 95th percentile in all domains except verbal memory. Mm -hmm. And in verbal memory, I was in the 50th percentile. So I was still absolutely normal, but there was just a hint there that something was amiss in parts of my brain that were important in verbal memory. And, and were, were you aware of the verbal, was there some kind of verbal thing going on that you became aware of after you got this news? Like you could see that you had some-, some Well, yeah. Problems? You know, of course, you know, we, we, we start grasping at things that, yeah. uh, and you know, who knows what's just normal aging. But I had uh, recently uh, uh, changed offices uh, I had been in private practice or in a group practice, and I moved to OHSU in 2010, and I never did, uh, never could learn my new telephone number. Hmm. Now, by that time, we weren't using telephones very much, and, and uh, yeah, that wasn't, didn't really bother me, but I also couldn't remember my new address. And again, I, I had rarely had need for it because we were doing email <laughs> by then. And, but I, I, I was starting to have trouble remembering the names of colleagues um, and, hmm. and you know, having trouble recognizing them. Um, and, uh, and so I did retire in 2013 because I, I, I still was cognitively okay, but I just didn't want to run the risk of making a mistake in, in, in a field that just doesn't have a, a tolerance for making errors, uh, mm -hmm. which is you know, a medicine. 
And then it wasn't until 2015 that I had, you know, comprehensive testing and, and, mm -hmm. and, and, and was, was part of a study that uh, was looking at uh, new ligands for uh, tau pet and, and uh, that all, it all kind of came together at that time. And I still had uh, on the testing in 2015, I still was in the mild cognitive impairment range, but I did have Alzheimer's pathology uh, in my brain, both amyloid and the beginning of tau. So we want to circle back to the, the APOE that you mentioned just a minute ago, but but it's complicated, and I think there's a bunch of things we'd like to talk about. Can you tell us more about the kinds of memory tests that you took, and if there is a typical progression that these phantasmias are, are sort of the first things that would happen, and then uh, you, you mentioned verbal memory. Is it typically verbal memory, or it? I mean, there's a whole bunch of whole constellation of memory. There's a whole constellation of tests for them. What is typical if that if typical is even a sensible thing to ask? Yeah, and 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 there are many uh, different ways that Alzheimer's can progress, and and you know it may be actually several diseases mm. um, that that we've been conflating into one. But mm. yes, verbal memory is the most common presentation, uh, having trouble coming up with words, uh, making uh, errors in speech. Uh, those are some of the, the most common early things. And, and those, I, I was having some of that uh, tr trouble uh, coming up with the names. Uh, as by 2015, I was having trouble uh, uh, recalling names of neighbors, like our next door neighbor, uh, my next door neighbor, Walt. And I, I, I mentioned this in the book. I, I had to uh, work out a mnemonic for him, which I still use. <laughs> right. uh, that that uh, whenever I would see him, I would think of Disneyland, and that would make me think of Walt Disney, and that would give me Walt. <laughs> And, and the other one that I used was my colleague, uh, Lisa Silbert, uh, who's a, a you know, kind of up and rising uh, expert in, in uh, kind of the vasculature, uh, the, the overlap between vascular dementia and Alzheimer's and, and, and uh, looking at uh, the microcirculation in the brain. But uh, I would always have, to, I can remember Lisa, but I just couldn't come up with her last name and it was really getting embarrassing. So I got the mnemonic for her, which was, uh, I would uh, think of hazelnut and that would get me to Filbert and that would get me wow. to Silbert. Silbert. <laughs> when I put that in the book, uh, my wife Lois said, you know, you better change that because, you know, that would really, she, she probably wouldn't want to have her name put in the book. So I, I emailed uh, uh, Lisa and uh, told her this and she got such a, so I, I, in a draft, I changed her name to something else that I can't remember what it was now, but you know, yeah. a, new, a new mnemonic. That right, went. right. Um, and she, oh no, no, put my name in there. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Well, maybe tell tell us too a little bit more about these um, sort of more definitive tests that you had in 2015. So you mentioned amyloid and tau, and these would have been presumably PET scans of your brain and MRI scans to look at look at brain volume. So, so what do those scans reveal? And you know what. What about those revelations say it's Alzheimer's versus something else? Right. Um, well, you know, I was really lucky. I mean, it's maybe a unique experience for someone with Alzheimer's to be able to actually see all the data as it was being generated and, and uh, you know, see the scans. And Because normally when you're part of a study, you don't really know what sort of data is being gathered. But, you know, at the, at the end of this week of testing, um, I think I had three PET scans because uh, the other one was the FTG PET, which isn't used much anymore, which is a, a, a measure of metabolic activity in the brain. Um, but I had the tau PET, the amyloid PET, uh, 
two days of cognitive testing, a high resolution MRI scan. And uh, the MRI scan showed more atrophy than I should have had for my age. And uh, particularly around the hippocampus, uh, my hippocampus was uh, smaller than it should have been. Uh, no surprise there. Uh, the uh, amyloid scan showed uh, a moderate amount of beta amyloid, primarily in, well, not primarily scattered about, but uh, most notably in the prefrontal cortex, uh, which is one of the first places you see amyloid in most cases. And of course, that's an area uh, that's involved with uh, motivation and making plans and-, and uh, uh, Executive function. Executive function, exactly, yeah. right. But also what caught my eye was uh, when I saw these scans was I, I, I had Gil uh, Rubinovich, uh, who's the PI there, uh, blow it up. And, and there was an uptake of, of uh, ligand in the area of the piriform cortex and then the mesial orbital frontal cortex. And I don't know if, if that's of any meaning, except that those are areas that are important processing areas for olfaction. And of course, um, pathologically, Alzheimer's pathology has been reported very early in olfactory centers, particularly the olfactory bulb. And we didn't see it there, but I think that's because it's just so tiny, you don't have mm. that resolution on a PET scan. I, I thought it was really cool that there it was in, in the area of the piriform cortex and the mesial part of the orbital frontal cortex. Now the, the tau scan, the tau of course is the protein, abnormal tau is found in the neurofibrillary tangles. I don't know how much detail we want to detail's good we love detail okay yeah. <laughs> okay all right so so amyloid is extracellular of course it, it's it's in the spaces between the neurons um and uh, it, it occurs uh, pathologically up to 20 years before the onset of of uh memory problems or, or cognitive mm -hmm. problems the neurofibrillary tangles uh which are intraneural uh, or in the axons. And that's tau, right? That's tau. That's abnormal yeah. tau. Uh, and, and that occurs closer to the time of cognitive impairment beginning. And that's actually the, it's being pushed earlier and earlier in, in more sensitive studies. But in, it used to be, the, the dogma used to be that tau appeared about the time of, of cognitive impairment. But it looks like it's at least a couple of years before and, and, you know, there's a series of, of uh, blood markers, now plasma markers for various uh, tau fragments that have come out in the last couple of years. Uh, and there's, uh, I can't remember the numbers that go with them all, but there's, there's one in particular that seems to be quite specific for amyloid-induced tau. So that's a, maybe a very good biomarker for uh, early signs of, of uh, Alzheimer's disease. But that... I believe that's the one that could be found quite early. Uh, you know, it may be even more sensitive than tau pet, you know, for picking up the early signs. But getting back to my my tau pet, the there was no um, there was just a little bit of of tau uh, signal in the mesial temporal lobe, and and that's where it usually starts, you know, in the area around the entorhinal cortex and the uh, hippocampus. Um, now we repeated the. Uh, I'm maybe jumping ahead, but but. I went back three years later and, and you repeated these scans and uh, the amyloid had spread and, and uh, there's a different part to that story that related to the aria that we can talk about it at, at some point. But the tau uh, had progressed quite dramatically bilaterally in the temporal lobes and it had, had migrated posteriorly into the temporal lobes. And this was to me just a, a beautiful uh, example of 
what we've what has been found about how tau propagates you know amyloid uh and this is kind of the mysteries of amyloid and what does it really mean it kind of pops up all over the place but it doesn't spread contiguously but tau spreads contiguously so and th there's this feeling that uh and i'm no expert on this but there's this feeling that um tau propagates like a prion a prion is, is an abnormally folded protein that's all it is and it uh, spreads by um, changing the uh, configuration uh, or, or conf, conf, what's the word? Confirmation. Confirmation. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, see that that's the Alzheimer's is getting the uh -huh. right word. The the confirmation of neighboring tau protein, and it's it's felt to be done interneurally. It spreads from neuron to neuron, and uh, I think that's kind of a really interesting concept. And and mm. uh, uh, so yeah. when when tau spreads, it tends to spread in a contiguous fashion. Dan, do we have any idea where, I mean, I, this is a giant question and I've never found the, <laughs> do we know where the amyloid comes from? I mean, does it, does it have any function? The tau is, I mean, both of these are proteins that are sort of always in the brain and just sort of go out of control or end up in places where they shouldn't be, or how do we get to that part in the first place? Well, that is the million dollar question. And, and there's a lot of, and has been a lot of controversy, and, and I'm not really expert enough to speak to it. You know, the, there's a huge, it has been a huge controversy about the meaning of, of amyloid. Mm -hmm. And there still are many who feel like amyloid is, is just waste product. It, it's not doing anything. It's, it's, it's not causing Alzheimer's. Yeah, right? it's not causing the problem. Right. It's a result of the problem. And, and there's uh, been some recent work that claims to show that, that amyloid may actually be protective. Uh, but that's, that's a huge, I don't want, I, I, I am not able to really inform you on that controversy. Uh, you know, the, the, the amyloid hypothesis, which has driven a, you know, most of Alzheimer's research for the last 30 years or, or more, you know, has said that uh, amyloid forms for whatever reason, I mean, there, there's the amyloid precursor protein that exists normally, mm -hmm. and then it gets cleaved into different uh, fragments of, of amyloid, some of which mm -hmm. are, are neurotoxic and some aren't. Um, and so the thought was that something gets that cleavage started, amyloid forms, and then later that triggers uh, the tau cascade, uh, and and uh, and that that's the amyloid hypothesis. But th there's there's a lot of pushback uh, on that, and and you know. My, my feeling is really growing that what we call Alzheimer's disease uh, is probably mechanistically a number of different things. And, you know, that, uh, well, I certainly feel that uh, people who have Alzheimer's disease because of uh, APOE4 probably have a, a, a different disease than people who don't have APOE4. And, and, and therapies will probably need to be targeted to, huh. to subsets. And, and that's, you know, coming out of the trials. You know, yeah. the 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 anti-amyloid trials uh, tend to show a better response to people who are APOE4 positive than to people who aren't APOE4 uh, mm -hmm. positive. And one of the reasons we may not be seeing you know great results from these trials is that everybody is lumped together. It's just like the earliest trials back in the 90s, uh, everybody with dementia was thrown in there. I mean, we thought they had <laughs> Alzheimer's, but it turned out that 
uh, a huge percent, maybe 20% of the people in, in those trials didn't have Alzheimer's, they had something else. So the, the subject pool was contaminated with, with mm -hmm. non-Alzheimer's patients, which right. would of course make it much more difficult to show yeah, an effect. Sure. Sure. And I think we can take that, I think we'll find we can take that to another level and subdivide Alzheimer's once we know more about it and, and, and have targeted therapies for these different things that result in, in Alzheimer's pathology and, and, uh, and Alzheimer's presentation, clinical right. presentation, which we've been conflating together, but they may be mechanistically different diseases. You don't mind talking about it um maybe tell us about what changes you've noticed in yourself in the last five years or so and i guess i guess you had a follow-up scan in 2018 it sounds like but what are the sort of main symptoms that you've noticed coming on well i mean it's been very slow uh and and i'm still you know most people wouldn't know that i have alzheimer's disease now and you know i i still test in the uh, mci mild cognitive impairment range on on screening tests, but part of that is, you know, I know the tests and, mm -hmm. and, you know, I know the answers to them and, and, and that's particularly for the, uh, the mini mental state exam. I, I gave that every day for 30 years or 25 years. And, and, you know, it, it's, it's a worthless test for me. I always score perfectly on it. Uh, the, uh, the MOCA, the Montreal, uh, cognitive assessment exam uh, is is a much better test. I I feel I think it's a much better screen. And one thing I like about it is it comes in three forms, so you can mix them up, and it it really reduces the learning bias if you're giving it repeatedly. But but on the MOCA, I I tend to score about uh, 26 now to 30, uh, which is still above dementia, which is I think 21. Mm -hmm. And and 30 is the high score that's yeah, possible. Right, yeah, right. Yeah, okay, mm -hmm. got it. Uh, but but you know, I'm I'm sorry, I wandered on there. There's sorts of problems I have. So verbal stuff is probably my biggest problem, you know, in, in conversations like this, you know, not being able to think of the right word or, or getting a similar word that's not quite right and, and not recognizing that I've made that, that mistake. Uh, I, I have a lot of trouble. Uh, I, I can no longer, this is one of the most frustrating things with regard to speech, uh, understanding speech. I, I can't fill in blanks anymore from context. And, and so if somebody's speaking to me, if I don't catch the first few words, I can't understand what they said. Mm -hmm. And th this happens every day, multiple times, my wife will say something to me. I mean, just a, a, have you fed the dog or something? And and I'll, I'm almost always saying, I'm sorry, what did you say? And, you know, there's some frustration on her part for sure, but, you know, she's used to it now. And she'll mm -hmm. sometimes mm -hmm. she'll just repeat it right away. But this is particularly uh, a fraught situation in groups. So uh, when there are multiple people speaking, and and there's been less of that, you know, now with the pandemic. But you know, at a dinner dinner gathering with our family, you know, I just am a, kind of a passive observer largely because I I can't keep track of it's multiple conversations. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and probably in loud backgrounds like in restaurants or bars, that becomes even more difficult, right? Which is right. <laughs> I can still do you know one on one. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I often have to have people re repeat themselves. So that's, that's mm -hmm. frustrating. Um, Short-term memory is getting worse. So uh, I often can't remember you know, what happened half hour ago or something like that. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. Or if I've done something or I'll, I'll misplace something and, and forget where I put it. Do you have ways of dealing with that? Like, do you, do you write down more things? Or yeah, yeah, leave, I do lists. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I, list. I try to put things in the same place. I, 
I was starting to make more uh, mistakes with my medications. And I, I, I've used a pill minder for several years, but I would, I would go in in the morning and find that I'd totally forgotten to take the evening dose, you mm. know, so all those things. And mm. so now I, I, now I have this uh, sign that I put, put on my pillbox that says, pay attention. That's a stop, pay attention to kind of like really focus on this. Yeah. What happens is that I'm thinking about something else. And, and so my automatic pilot fails me at times. Hmm. Um, your dog features really prominently in the book. And I, I have two dogs myself. So it was great to, to read so much about the dog. But have you noticed anything from him? Can he perceive um, changes in the short behavior? How long have you have you long have you had the dog? It seems like he's been with you for a while. Yeah, this one's been with us seven years. I I I I. Jack is not that smart. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's not going to solve the amyloid Having a lucky. <laughs> no, no. And, and he's very self-centered, you know, <laughs> he loves to come over and get cuddled, but it's not about, you know. Yeah. Not, not for you, not to make you feel better. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been threatening a few times, Dan, um, about APOE. Um, let's dig into that a little bit because on the surface, and you allude to this in your book, it seems so bizarre that a protein that transports lipids in the blood is somehow involved in this disease. So do we have any idea about what its role might be? I mean, what, what generally does it do and what's it thought to do in Alzheimer's? Yeah. And, and you know, the, just backing off of that for just a second, you know, when that work came out in the 90s, uh, Alan Roses was the guy who, who presented the, the data showing that people with APOE4 were more likely to have Alzheimer's disease and it was published in Science, and it got very little traction because it just didn't fit the, the paradigm at the time, which was all into the amyloid hypothesis. And, and how could a, a gene that was involved in lipoprotein have anything to do with it? And uh, it really set him back. Uh, you know, he had trouble getting funding, and, and he, he was right. Uh, it, it just took a long time for it to, to settle in. Um, and I've been puzzled by that too. You know, what, what does lipoprotein metabolism have to do with uh, Alzheimer's. Uh, and, you know, the, the, there has been some recent work uh, that shows that uh, APOE4, astrocytes from APOE4 carriers in culture have disturbed uh, lipid metabolism. Mm -hmm. and, uh, as, and, and you guys know more about that than I do. And, you know, that may be the, the link that kind of uh, closes the circle and, and mm -hmm. uh, and, and makes the connection between uh, the APOE gene and Alzheimer's risk. Right. Well, there's this APOE4, as I remember it, and really everything I know about Alzheimer's and APOE comes from a, an undergraduate that was in my lab uh, about 10 years ago named Justin Trotter, who since is a PhD um, at Stanford um, working in a, a neuroscience lab there. Um, but, you know, there, there are three different versions of APOE, right? Two, three, and four. And as I remember from Justin, three is the sort of ancestral version. And then sometime hundreds of thousands of years ago, four became dominant and then three started to take over again. So it's, I mean, in my mind, it's not just the complexity of what in the world does APOE do in the context of Alzheimer's. Why do you get so much diversity in the comings and goings of an allele that's so powerfully, you know, negative with respect to disease? Well, I know. And, and you know, you haven't even talked about APOE2, which is the, the least common allele, and it, mm -hmm. it is protective. And, you know, people who are, uh, and they're rare, you know, homozygotes in APOE2 are a thousand times less likely to get Alzheimer's than homozygotes of APOE4. Wow. wow. Yeah, that was in, in, uh, in Ryman's paper that came out last year uh, hmm. in autopsy-proven uh, uh, samples. Uh, 
So yeah, what's going on there? If we could replicate the APOE2, whatever, you would think it would have been, well, it could have been selected for because this is for late onset Alzheimer's disease. And, and so this gene is outside of, of natural selection. But mm -hmm. uh, uh, Art, when we were uh, emailing the other day, I, I, uh, I, I mentioned the question of antagonistic pleiotropy. Yeah, which we're, we're super interested in. Yeah, yeah. And, and, th and that's controversial and I'm no expert, but it certainly resonates with me. And, and I don't know, maybe you should explain what antagonistic pleiotropy is. Sure, yeah, yeah. I, I would just say, you know, it's, it's a, a, an effect where an allele that has a positive effect early in life and a negative effect late in life is positively selected because selection is stronger early, early in a lifetime. Um, and so I think you're suggesting that APOE4 could be such an antagonistic pleiotropy allele with bad effects late, but good effects early. So then I guess the question is, what are those good early effects? Yeah, and, and that, that's where the controversy is, but there is a yeah. literature uh, that uh, it is not great uh, and, and you know, can be picked apart a little bit, but showing that APOE4 uh, carriers uh, are more likely, young people with APOE4 are more likely to, to go to college uh, and do better in school. Uh, even there are some papers even looking at, at youngsters, you know, before college age. Um, and, and then there's uh, uh, Jennifer Rusted uh, has published a number of papers, although she's backed away a little bit from the the, the theory a bit, but uh, her work has, has uh, with uh, functional MRI has showed that APOE, young APOE4 carriers have a uh, higher processing speed in certain parts of the brain hmm. that uh, may provide a, a short-term advantage. And then the, the thought in that theory is that uh, in the 40s and 50s, the, the curves cross and, and uh, it, it starts being ad disadvantageous. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned to you the other day, Art, I, I just did some you know, back of the envelope calculations on, on what you would expect the uh, prevalence of, of APOE4 to be. And just based on the, uh, the prevalence of, of APOE4 homozygotes uh, and APOE4 heterozygotes, they, they don't quite match. And there are, there are more homozygotes than there are heterozygotes. And, and, and that probably doesn't mean anything, but you might yeah. think it would suggest there's some sexual selection. Yeah. Well, you know, if you look across other human populations, so non-Westernized populations, this is the piece of information that, that that student Justin gave me that just blew me away that there's some interesting thing about maybe antagonist plantropy going on. In the pygmies, APOE4 is like 41%. In, in um, multiple different, the Khoisan, 37%, the ab Aboriginals of, of Malaysia, 24%, um, Papuans, 37%. So this locus that's supposed to, I mean, in, in Western populations is so detrimental in some other places is remarkably common. I mean, to the degree that you just, it doesn't make sense that it's all about bad news. Yeah, well, and of course, in those populations, they're not living long enough. Well, right, exactly. Right, right. so relaxed selection on, on you know, older, old age phenotypes. Yeah. We wanted to shift over now and start talking about um, the kinds of things that one can do and the sorts of interventions that might be useful in, you know, slowing down or stopping the progression of Alzheimer's disease. And, and we'd like to divide this part of the conversation up into two parts. Um, I think we'd like to start just by talking about uh, strictly medical interventions, so different kinds of drugs that are in the pipeline and their, their relative utility. 
And then after that, we want to talk about life lifestyle changes that, that one can make. Um, so maybe let's just talk first about about drugs. Um, what What's your sense of the state of the science for drugs that will be useful in Alzheimer's? Well, you know, since 1990 or thereabouts, the, the emphasis has been almost exclusively on amyloid in, in trying to uh, get rid of amyloid. And as you may remember, the, the first trial was a huge disaster. I mean, that was a, a trial um, in Ireland of uh, active active immunization against amyloid. So yeah. they were giving people shots of amyloid to develop a response, an immune response. And research along those lines is still going on, but that trial was a disaster because a huge number of people got encephalitis and died. Oh, no. uh, and and uh, autopsies on them is, uh, showed that there was an effect on removing amyloid, but you know they still died. Yeah. Uh, oh. Anyway, they shifted to giving antibodies rather than stimulating yeah. immunization. Um, and so there have been a number of trials of monoclonal antibodies uh, that are anti-amyloid to various parts of the molecule over the last 10, 15 years or so. And the first ones um, just you know, d- didn't harm people, but they just showed no benefit at all. And as I mentioned earlier, some of those early trials were contaminated by subjects that didn't have Alzheimer's disease. So they had a couple of strikes against them before they even started. And then uh, with more recent trials, uh, the bapinuzumab and, and solanuzumab uh, and similar anti-amyloid monoclonal antibodies, they uh, showed some effects at removing amyloid, but ha- didn't move the markers in any cognitive, uh, slowing cognitive worsening. Mm-hmm. However, um, they were dosed very conservatively because of this complication of giving anti-amyloid monoclonal antibodies called ARIA, amyloid-related imaging abnormalities. And so in all of these trials, some of the people have gotten uh, areas of of cerebral edema and sometimes microhemorrhages in the brain uh, after receiving these antibodies. And most of the time, they are completely without symptoms uh, and they're just found on MRI scans and they resolve uh, uh, after stopping the drug, and usually the drug can be started again. Uh, rarely they're, they're serious. But uh, when aducanumab came along, which is now called Eduhelm, their dosing was uh, much more aggressive because they uh, came to the feeling that these aria, that the previous trials have been dosed to not produce aria. Okay, so they were giving very low doses. So the aducanumab phase two and phase three trials uh, were more permissive about having uh, ARIA. And uh, in the phase uh, 1B slash two trial, uh, I think they had 35 or 40% of, of, of people had ARIA. But again, they were almost all trivial and quite manageable. And, and uh, actually was in the phase three trial. And that was the thing that really drew me to it because I thought that they were really being aggressive, and this was a, a drug that would be more likely to work. And of course, as we know now, the uh, aducatumab is, is pretty good at getting rid of amyloid, but it's still controversial whether or not it has a, a true effect on slowing uh, cognitive progression. And now there are a couple of other uh, promising anti-amyloid drugs in, in uh, going into phase three trials as well that uh, are even better at getting rid of the denitumab, I think that's what it's called, totally wipes out the amyloid and it doesn't come back. So they, in those trials, they can actually stop the, the mm-hmm. drug 
And it, it, we don't know yet how long it'll take for amyloid to come back. But you know, that's, I think, very promising. But you know, we don't have data of whether that, that works. So you know, you know, the big begs the question, does removing amyloid do anything? And we don't know. <laughs> yeah, uh, and, 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 and I don't know. Uh, and I'm starting to, to lose a little bit of faith that you know, yeah, I, it's more right. complicated than that. Right. Hey, before we move on, um, can you just talk about the link between your experience in this phase three trial and the title of your book, uh, Tattoo on My Brain, right? So you had relatively severe aria. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I, I was an outlier. Uh, I, in the aducanumab trial, uh, I was randomized to the placebo arm, I found out afterwards. So for 18 months, I had placebo. And then there was a, a um, open label extension phase, optional, where you knew you were going to get drug. And always with these drugs, you, you get ramped up uh, you know, from a low dose to whatever dose you, you're randomized to. But after just four doses uh, of, the, of this drug, four monthly doses uh, at, at, you know, quite low amounts, I started to get, you know, severe headaches. And, and, and frankly, I wasn't thinking quite clearly. And, and I had, didn't even consider the fact that I had aria. Uh, I thought I wasn't thinking clearly because I thought my Alzheimer's was getting worse. Um, but in any case, it came to a head with, you know, the worst headache of my life uh, became encephalopathic. You know, I couldn't think clearly. Mm. Uh, my blood pressure went through the roof and I got admitted to an ICU for, for two days. Uh, and I had a uh, probably in the most severe case that's been reported of ARIA. Mm -hmm. And it was actually published uh, as a case study. You're special. Huh? Yeah, yeah. I actually got to be a co-author of my case oh, no study. Kidding. <laughs> yeah, wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it, it's, it's actually worth looking at because it, it, it has uh, you know, all the, the uh, MRIs and, and the PET scan. Well, what, what makes the case study interesting is that because I'd also been in this other study of uh, amyloid and tau PET scans, they, those uh, scans straddled the ARIA event. So we were able to look at what happened to uh, amyloid and tau in my N of one after the ARIA. Um, and, and that was quite interesting. That's in uh, Alzheimer's and dementia for those mm -hmm. who were interested. So uh, my encephalopathy and headache got a little better when my blood pressure was, was uh, under control. But then, then I started having, over the next uh, month or so, actually had more uh, cognitive problems. And it, it, it sort of makes sense because uh, this antibody has a half-life of about, uh, I think it's about five weeks uh, or three weeks, something like that, in the course of weeks. So five half-lives to get is going to be months. And it might even be longer than that for my brain, you know, who knows. Mm -hmm. So uh, after about a month, I was given a course of, of very high dose uh, IV steroids. And nobody really knew how to treat this because it really hadn't happened before. And, and after the third dose, my headache went away and I started to think better. And then there are a series of monthly MRI scans in that paper uh, afterwards to show that it took about four or five months for the edema to resolve. And at the end of it, I was, I was, you know, cognitively totally back to normal and felt fine. And the only thing that was different on my MRI scans was, uh, uh, residual hemosiderin, the iron-containing pigment in blood, because uh, I had multiple, you know, uncountable microhemorrhages throughout my brain, uh, as well as the edema. And every, every place I had one of those microhemorrhages, there's a little tattoo, and that, uh -huh. that's been left over. And, uh, and the, the hemosiderin, I like to think, is not all that different from a 
uh, the ink you get into tats. So uh, yeah. that's that's where I got the title. And say, Dan, there are much easier ways to get tattoos. You just got to go down <laughs> to your local parlor. This is way too elaborate, <laughs> but you but unique, yeah, indeed, never to be yes. repeated. Yes. Um. So, a sort of an opinion question. Um. Then there are so there are drugs. We didn't talk about them, but there are drugs to treat the sort of symptoms. Like I think it's called denepazil. It treats memory and awareness. Those, those sorts of things. So we have those on the table. But do you, what do you think about the possibility of, of coming up with drugs that'll be, you know, fully effective against Alzheimer's? Do you think that that's, um, is it fundamentally misplaced hope or is there, is there some other road to cures and, you know, more effective treatments that we should be considering? Yeah. Well, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very hopeful that sooner or later we're going to know enough about the disease to, to figure out how to stop it, uh, or, or at least uh, slow its progression. And and to me, you know, that's it's an important distinction. But it's it's a it's still a very worthy goal if we could just slow the progression. You know, personally speaking, I want to do everything I can to slow the progression of my Alzheimer's disease so that I die of something else before I die of Alzheimer's, which is not a good way to go. Uh, so we don't have to cure Alzheimer's; we just have to slow it down to 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 be successful. Mm-hmm. No, I'm, I've lost track of what your first part of your question was. Well, just what kind of um, treatments you most advocate for? What what should the drugs be or are drugs the solution? Well, you know, tenepazil is actually a great drug. And, you know, I take it and I noticed an effect uh, after starting it uh, probably within a couple of months. And, and I'm, I'm quite convinced that it, it works. But it's not a disease-modifying drug. I mean, all it's doing presumably is boosting acetylcholine levels in parts of your brain and, and along with parts of your gut. I mean, that's when you, you never have constipation when you're taking the <laughs> <laughs> and, and seriously, some people can't tolerate it. You know, wow. Some, but, um, or, or it's cousins, but you know, that came out in the nineties uh, and was a game changer, but it only pushed people. It didn't, it didn't slow the, the rate of progression of, of the disease. It only at best pushed you back a couple of years in the slope of deterioration. And, uh, and that was great, you know, for a lot of people, for a lot of people didn't work at all, but, you know, we can do better. Uh, And, you know, the, the Holy grail is finding something that alters the disease process itself. And, and that's, you know, where everybody's trying to to get. And of course, you know, there's a lot of interest in tau. If we could target tau and and there are trials of monoclonal antibodies directed at tau underway, uh, you know, maybe that is the way to go. Uh, You know, my, my, bias, and I'm, I'm having to re-examine it because I, it may not be right. My feeling was that by the time that tau appears, the neurofibrillary tangles, it's too late. You know, the horses are out of the barn. You've got mm. neurodegeneration and, and, and shrinking brain, and you can't bring that back. But uh, there's been some recent work, uh, and I can't quote it because I can't remember the details, that actually shows some promise with with uh, tau therapy, so uh, anti-tau therapy. So mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'll keep an open mind, but I think in, in general, the earliest that we can intervene, uh, the more likely we are to have success. I wanna talk about um, lifestyle changes that one can make and just sort of ways that people can transform their lives to try to uh, slow down or prevent Alzheimer's. Um, I want to just sort of frame this by telling you a little bit about my my own situation. Um, I, I found out about two years ago, uh, after signing up for some genealogical testing at 23andMe, um, that uh, I too am an ApoE4 homozygote. Uh, and I found out 
um, very much like you, almost by accident. I um, I did this actually as part of preparing for a show that Marty and I did a couple of years ago with 23andMe scientists. And, and on the show, we just we talked to them about their process, how they analyze you know the human genome, how they associate SNPs with different traits. And, and during that, I said, you know, hey, I thought when I signed up for this that uh, I was going to get some information about alleles that are associated with medical risks. And I, I didn't get that information in my report. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, you can go onto the site and, you know, sign up for the black box stuff that you, you mentioned earlier. And I, I thought, oh, I just I just missed that. So I went onto the site and I, I didn't think about it very hard. Um, I just signed all the legal documents and thought nothing of it. And then I got my report and... Um, had the big red flashing box basically that said you're an ApoE4 homozygote at very high risk for de- future development of, of, of Alzheimer's. And uh, I mean, may- maybe like you, I, I was really shocked. I've been shocked by by this news. Um, and I initially was unsure whether I was even happy that I had, had found this out. <laughs> um, and I, I've since actually changed my mind about that uh, 180 degrees. I'm, I'm actually really quite happy that I, I know. And that's because I feel like I, I don't have symptoms yet, or if I do, they're very minor. Um, and that that gives me a chance to implement many of these sort of major lifestyle changes that may slow down the progression or prevent me from getting it altogether. And so I'm, in the last couple of years, I've started eating much better. I've been you know, sleeping more, drinking substantially less alcohol, uh, exercising a lot more. You know, doing doing these various things. And I guess, I guess, let me let me turn this into a question for you, which is, um, you know, what what do you think is the relative utility of lifestyle changes, and and what are the most important lifestyle changes that somebody like you know with my genotype or your genotype can can do to help themselves the most? Well, Art, you tossed me a softball there because you know that, that's that's the thing I'm most passionate about is trying to get the the message across that what's really important is to at least as a society you know, recognize that changes in what we do in midlife and maybe even before that can have a huge impact in reducing our risk of Alzheimer's disease as well as other things like cardiovascular disease. Mm-hmm. I mean, most of the lifestyle changes that we'll talk about uh, are also lifestyle changes that that uh, reduce the risk for cardiovascular disease. So that makes it relatively easy. Um, it, it, let's take them one by one. The, the best data so far is for aerobic exercise. Virtually every study that's been done has showed benefit uh, at least when started before the onset of cognitive impairment. The negative studies tend to be ones done in people who already have Alzheimer's disease. There was a good study from the UK a year or two ago, a uh, well done study uh, in people in nursing homes and it, it showed no benefit of, of mm. aerobic exercise. But you know that's the horses are out of the barn. Sort of too thing. late by the point. Too late, yeah. yeah. But in, in uh, epidemiological studies and actually in controlled studies, in, in virtually every study that's been done, uh, people who start exercising regularly with aerobic exercise uh, in midlife have a lower uh, chance of getting Alzheimer's. And it seems to slow the progression of the pathology uh, in Alzheimer's, so the people get it later if they're going to get it. And uh, strength uh, exercise doesn't seem to be as beneficial. And it's certainly not harmful, but you've got to get the heart beating to to get this beneficial effect. Uh, and it's it's so important that uh, that would be one of the only reasons I would suggest 
early testing for risk factors, you know, like APOE4, you know, people say, mm -hmm. well, why should I get tested? And I don't think that people should get tested necessarily. Uh, if you would just adopt these uh, lifestyle changes that can modify risk factors, you'd be good to go. So uh, definitely people who have a family history of Alzheimer's disease, which is a huge risk factor, that you need to, to uh, get started uh, on these lifestyle modifications. So uh, exercise, um, and nobody knows what the right amount is uh, for sure. But, uh, you know, I shoot for 10,000 steps a day. I, I, we walk in the hills, so I'm getting about 400 feet of elevation gain, and I track my heart rate, and, you know, I, it gets up to around 120. So I, I, I'm doing that every day. Uh, the next thing is, is diet, and, and the data there is also very good, not quite as robust as for exercise. Uh, some uh, studies of the Mediterranean diet have not shown much benefit, but most have. Uh, the MIND diet, which is the one I follow, is, is, stands for the Mediterranean-Intervention for Neurodegeneration, I think. And that came out about six or seven years ago, uh, I think from Rush, and it's essentially a Mediterranean diet that has a little more emphasis on uh, foods that are high in flavanols, like certain berries and, and nuts. It's pretty easy to follow. The, the only trouble I have with it is that for some reason, cheese is limited to one serving per week. And I love cheese. So I love cheese too. <laughs> and I don't understand those limitations. So. Yeah. So I, I, I'm not, I'm not a pure mind adherent. I do eat more cheese, but, but in the, the study that was published about the mind diet in, I think, 2018 in neurology, um, they showed that partial adherence also benefited you not quite as much, but you know, do, do the best you can at the very least. That's right, yeah. and that's true of, of anything. Yeah. Um, and then uh, you step down a, a notch in, in the strength of the data. But the next would be uh, intellectual stimulation, and that's it's it's kind of a no brainer. I mean, oh boy, that's a bad pun. <laughs> uh, you got the dad joke in. I love it. But uh, it's a it's a, a controversial area in that there's there's controversy about the mind training games and things like that, and uh, I I think the consensus is coming down that the, the sort of intellectual stimulation that's beneficial is in learning new things uh, rather than just you know playing games or or doing crossword puzzles. And, you know, I do crossword puzzles every day. That's part of my lunch routine. I do the New York Times online. And uh, the, what I try to do, though, is uh, when I, as I get to the end of the week where the words are hard uh, and uh, things pop up that you've never heard of before, I stop and I look them up and try and learn something about that weird lake in Asia that I've never heard of before, <laughs> you know, and, and, and just try and create some new synapses um, rather than just you know, filling it in. Uh, social stimulation is supposed to be important. I, I, I think the data there is a little more iffy. Uh, it can't hurt anything, but it's really hard uh, in Alzheimer's um, because as we, I'm speaking of people with Alzheimer's, lose executive function and, and, and uh, get prefrontal damage, we tend to, to lose our empathy. Uh, I think that's a, a real problem that I have in, in con connecting with to people. Uh, I would just as soon stay home. Uh, so I have to force myself, uh, and particularly in these pandemic times, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's hard to get out and, and be social. Uh, and and it, it, it's fraught, as I mentioned before, because of the, the language problems, not being able to, to pick up things. But there is some data suggesting that people who stay socially active do, do better. Now, the thing that's kind of unique to 
dementia to Alzheimer's uh, that I don't think is uh, ties over to uh, cardiovascular disease is sleep. And maybe it does, I don't know. But uh, there's a growing literature that shows uh, that there is a benefit of getting adequate sleep to slowing progression of Alzheimer's and, and reducing the risk of getting it. And it, it may not be connected, but there's this tantalizing uh, mechanism that may be involved uh, called the glymphatic circulation. There's a whole series uh, in, in animal brain and also in, in the human brain of uh, passages, of uh, uh, perivascular passages for essentially CSF to flow around and through the brain. And the name comes from the, the analogy to the lymphatic system. So this mm-hmm. is the lymphatic system. And it's, it's a, and, and when this first w- was uh, uh, described a few years ago, uh, the popular press had a field day with a t- calling it brainwashing, but I like that, that, that term. <laughs> and uh, the, the, the flow through the lymphatic uh, circulation has been measured both in animals and in humans. And it's most active during non-REM slow wave sleep. And it's, it's tied, it's pulsatile, it's tied to uh, both uh, heartbeat, you know, changes in blood pressure, but also changes in the electrocephalogram. So that there are, you know, it, there's some movement generated that, that uh, correlates with brainwave activity. Uh, in any case, it, it's, it's kind of an, an interesting theory, but even if you don't buy that, or if it turns out not to be important, uh, empirically, uh, a number of studies have showed that people who get seven to eight hours of sleep are less likely to develop Alzheimer's than people who get six or less hours of sleep per night. And there was a paper just this last week, I think, where was it? I think it was in JAMA Neurology. Yeah, JAMA Neurology uh, that looked at the other end. And actually people who get more than nine hours of sleep also have more amyloid in their brain. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so don't laze around too much. And, and that kind of begs the question is, is what's causing what? I mean, are, are yeah. people sleeping more because they've yeah. got amyloid in their brain or, or, or whatever? But yeah. the sweet spot seems to be seven to eight hours of sleep. Yeah. I believe uh, Matthew Walker in his book, Why We Sleep, which I, I read recently, he, he also has quite a bit to say about the relationship between sleep and, and dementia and Alzheimer's. And I, I think one of his arguments was that Alzheimer's itself... Uh, can disrupt sleep patterns. And so there's this sort of negative spiral of, you know, disrupted sleep stimulating the, the severity of the Alzheimer's. It's very common for, for people with Alzheimer's to have uh, sleep disturbances. Um, and it goes both ways, it, it, in many ways, because uh, sleep apnea uh, can worsen uh, dementia. Uh, and, and so I, I know at least um, when my neurologist in San Francisco is, keeps wanting me to get a sleep study because he does that on everybody with... Uh, uh, Alzheimer's uh, to see if they need to have treatment for sleep apnea because that can be mm-hmm. improving. Interestingly, and it, this is a, a, a N of one again, uh, I've noticed in the last year or so that I've had increasing issues with what probably is REM sleep disorder. I don't know if you know about REM sleep disorder, but it's one of the um, the alpha synucleinopathies uh, like Parkinson's disease and, 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 and tied in with Parkinson's disease and, and Lewy body dementia. And, and, uh, and so it can be a symptom of any of those diseases. Uh, and it, it occurs normally during REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, we don't move. We, we're essentially paralyzed except for breathing. But people who have REM sleep disorder are, are not paralyzed. And REM is when we have much of our dreaming going mm-hmm. on. So they tend to act out their dreams. 
like sleepwalking, that kind of thing? Uh, yeah, not, yeah, sleepwalking or, or more commonly, not, not so much sleepwalking, but more thrashing about in mm -hmm. the bed and, and you know, kicking the spouse. And, and uh, I, I've had you know, a, a lot of that. And uh, about a month ago, I actually fell out of bed during a dream. Oh, okay. And that's never happened to me. I actually huh. hit my head on, on the bed, you know, I actually wow. could have been seriously injured. And now I, I pack myself in the pillow so that, you know, that won't happen. Uh -huh. um, so I don't know if that means that I've got some alpha synuclein issues as well. And, you know, there's, there, there's certainly when pathology is done of people who die of Alzheimer's disease, they often show other types of, of, of uh, dementia as well, and and uh, Lewy bodies, which are what contained alpha synuclein and are seen in Parkinson's disease and the other alpha synucleinopathies, are found in a substantial number of people who have Parkinson's, uh, who have uh, Alzheimer's disease as well, but never had any signs of Parkinson's disease. So I'm I'm just beginning to wonder whether I, I might have some um, Lewy bodies up there as well. Dan, this has been fantastic, but I'm getting sensitive to your time. I know you've got 90 minutes, and we've got a couple of questions that, if you'll indulge us, we'll go through those. How do you think this book, writing this book, has impacted you? The positives, the negatives, and any regrets about what made what was left on the cutting room floor? Oh, no, I don't think so. No, it's been a very positive experience. And and for me, this has been part of my therapy. I mean, doing the, the intellectual uh, work to do this, so uh, looking at the literature and 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 the contacts I've made uh, and remade, you know, I actually emailed, uh, you know, in, in the, the first draft of this book was more of a, of a linear memoir, more about in my life in science. And, and that was read by somebody who knew, knew better and said, you know, nobody's going to want to read this except for a scientist. <laughs> and and it's, that's what it got reshaped with the help of, of Teresa Barker into a, a more readable uh, book about, you know, Teresa is always saying, so how did that make you feel? And, you know, as a scientist, it was it, scientist writing, as you guys know, it, it's, you know, like dragnet, you know, nothing but the facts, man. <laughs> no feel. <laughs> That's right. No feeling, no, no, no touchy feeling. Uh, and so that took a bit uh, of, of, of doing, but, but you yeah, know, writing it and, and, and connecting with people. I, I connected with people from my grad school days, uh, a guy who had been working in a similar area that I had was now in his 80s in Australia. George Fink, uh, and we had lovely uh, conversations uh, on, uh, by email about the old days in, in neuroendocrinology. Uh, so it's been it's been really cool, uh, very positive experience. And, and I'm trying to, you know, to keep that going. I do have a blog where I try to update you know the literature and, and, and without making it too esoteric, so that it's readable by people who are not scientists. In fact, it's not directed at scientists at all. It's directed at people who have families with Alzheimer's or who have Alzheimer's who have risk for Alzheimer's. Well, let me just chime in here and say um, your book has had an incredibly positive effect on me too, and I, I just it's been inspirational to read your story and um, the progression of what you've done, and I think it also helps you know for people in my situation to see the the sort of destigmatization that that happens, and and I think that that's just been been really great for me, and I'm sure many other readers. So yeah, thanks. yeah. Well, thank you for those kind words, and 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 of course that has been a big part of. Of what I've tried to do is help destigmatize uh, Alzheimer's, mm -hmm. and you know I talk about it uh, with anybody who will listen. So all my neighbors you know, know about it, uh, mm -hmm. except I'm not sure if Walt knows about it. <laughs> yeah, leave a copy on his doorstep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Dan, the last one is the uh, the ultimate softball. What did we not give you the chance to say? Is there anything else that we've left out oh, that you gosh. want to pass on? 
No, I, you know, I think we've covered it pretty it, well. If there is, I can't think what it is. So that's, that's my, <laughs> my excuse. Fair enough. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been really okay. great. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode. Remember, we're a nonprofit, so we rely on your help to keep making the shows you love. To support us, please make a monthly donation through our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bigbio. You can also make a one-time contribution at bigbiology.org. Another way you can help us, one that costs you nothing, is to recommend Big Biology to a friend. Spread the word on social media or tell your teachers or professors about us. Growing our audience will also ensure Big Biology episodes keep coming. If you like what you hear, let us know via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, or a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't, We'd love to hear that too. All feedback is good feedback. And of course, if you want to hear a particular guest or an episode on your favorite topic, let us know about that too. And before we go, we want to tell you about a podcast you might like. I know Dino. We are in the golden age for dinosaur discoveries. A new dinosaur is discovered and named nearly every week. And I Know Dino is the only podcast that covers every new dinosaur discovery. After six years of production, I Know Dino is the world's largest dinosaur podcast. I know Dino is made by adults for adults, but they keep it clean so kids can listen too. Not only do Sabrina and Garrett cover new discoveries, they also promote critical thinking when new claims are presented about dinosaurs. Previous topics have included how close are the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park to our current understanding. What did Spinosaurus use its sail for? Did T-Rex really have short, useless arms? Was Velociraptors small and feathered? Did Dilophosaurus spit venom? What can fossilized gut contents tell us about dinosaur diets? Check them out wherever you get your podcast. Again, the podcast is I Know Dino. Thanks to Steve Lane, who manages the website, and Ruth Demry for producing the episode. Thanks also to Jordan Greer, Natasha Damright, Kyle Smith, and Blaine Doherty for helping produce this episode, and Keating Shimeri for the cover art. Thank you to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on the episode is from Poddington Bear.